Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. What is your relationship with drink? What is your relationship with alcohol? Uh, that's, that's our question. That's our title this morning. We're sort of back out and about, having been hidden away. And as the pubs reopen and all the rest of it, well, what does the Bible have to say about drink? I discovered recently there's a charity called Action for Addiction. And they've noticed that in the last year, they've had 86% more calls than they did in the prior year before lockdown. 86% increase in people saying, please help me. So there's, a, there's been an issue with, of course, all kinds of substances, <laughs> drink of which will be included. What's your relationship with drink? How have things been? And how, I wonder, do you expect them to be as things reopen? To get the wider perspective, a study by the World Health Organization in 2018 said that one in 20 deaths around the world are related to the harmful use of alcohol. That's 5% of the global burden of all disease. That is actually an epidemic. That is actually a pandemic in, in terms. Uh, according to that same study, 237 million men and 46 million women suffer with alcohol use disorders. In Europe, those numbers equate to 14.8% of all men and 3.5% of all women. That's remarkable, isn't it? Those numbers are startling. So it's a timely question, I think. Um, An article published in the Gospel Coalition a few years ago said that Christians need a better debate on the use of alcohol. And it gave three reasons why. I thought I'd share them with you. Reason number one, why do we need to have a better discussion about alcohol? One, uh, we now consume more of of everything, including alcohol. Cheap food and drink is so abundant, isn't it? You can go to Poundland and Lidl's and Aldi's and you can fill a boot full of food and drink and whatever quite easily. You can go to McDonald's and I think you can supersize pretty much everything there, can't you? And by and large, it seems human beings do. We're consuming more of everything than we used to. And this article argues that the the current Christian debate about alcohol is often, um, can I... Should I or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't I drink? And the problem with this, the way we're debating the use of alcohol is, the problem is we never get to that question of how much should we drink. And the big thing is we're consuming more of everything today. So we need a better debate. We need a better debate too, it's argued, because uh, modern wine is much stronger than in Bible times. So apparently our processes of fermentation have developed And so in Bible times, your wine used to be somewhere from 4% to 10% alcohol content. Um, Today, our wine is, by and large, 10% is a weak wine, isn't it, really? 17% might be a strong wine. I'm not big on wine. Um, In other words, our weakest wine is stronger than the strongest wine in Bible times. So we need a better debate on the use of alcohol. Lastly, uh, around the world, alcohol is a significant problem for teenagers, That same World Health Organization study found that about 44% of 15 to 19-year-olds in the European area are drinkers. And we might imagine are seriously heavy drinkers uh, at that point too. And when does the average teenager start drinking? At the age of 15. So we can't think we'll just tell our children, don't drink. We need to have a persuasive reason. We need to engage with them because culture is very enticing uh, on this question in our particular moment. How do we relate to alcohol? How do we relate to drink? What does the Bible say about drink? 
I think it's a timely question. It seems that when there are economic depressions, such as we've had, people drink more in those economic depressions. But as the economy recovers, people tend to party their way out of the depression, don't they? (laughs) Either way, this is something that we need to be talking about and having a better debate about, I think. So I'd like us to think about what does the Bible say about drink this morning? I've got three big points. The first one is going to take the lion's share of our time, okay? So if you think I'm being really slow, I'm going to be really, I think I'm going to be quick on the last two points. Um, if you'd like anything that I'm going to put on the screen, I can email it to you if you'd like it. You can use your phone. You have permission to use your phone to take a photo of the screen if you'd like to do that. Don't worry, in other words, about scribbling things down if, uh, if you're a note taker. Also, I'm going to rush through the Bible references as well. So if you try and look everyone up, you might be struggling to keep up. So maybe try and look at every other or every one in three or something, <laughs> just so you know. Anyway, here we go. So... What does the Bible say about drink? Here's the first thing I'd like to say. It's a matter of Christian freedom. What does the Bible say about drink? It's a matter of Christian freedom. And here I'd like to draw on a number of observations, actually all stolen from other preachers, really. Um, So shameless plagiarism this morning. But let's dive in. I've got 20 points, so we're going to do them really quick on why I think drink is a matter of Christian freedom. Here's here's the first few. First thing to see on wine in the Bible. Wine in the Bible is alcoholic. Wine in the Bible is alcoholic. The first time we come across wine in the Bible is, uh, uh, I believe, Genesis 9, verse 21, where we meet Noah, who is drinking wine, and then we find that he is drunk. He is clearly drinking something that has alcohol in it because he gets drunk. Wine in the Bible is alcoholic. I know sometimes people try and argue that wine in the Bible is more like grape juice and does not include alcohol. The problem with that, I think, is Numbers 6, verse 3, where um, the Nazarite is to abstain from both wine and grape juice. They're both in the same verse. In other words, they're, they're both alcoholic. Wine in the Bible does contain alcohol, and we've just got to be clear on that. We've got to, we've got to see that as we start our discussion on this. Observation number two, wine in the Bible is seen as good. Here's Isaac blessing his son in Genesis 27. He says, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. May God bless you with wine. It's seen as being a good thing in the Bible. Wine is seen as good. In fact, it's seen as being so good that point number three... Wine in the Bible is compared to the goodness and beauty of sex, of marital sex. And we see that in the, in the Song of, of Solomon. Let me read to you some verses from the Songs of Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. You see, they're compared. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine? Do you see? Wine in the Bible is compared to the goodness and beauty of marital sex. Now, we would never say, would we, that sex, a good gift of God, is something you simply abstain from. Sex can, of course, be abused, can't it? We know that very well. But just because it has potential for abuse does not rule out its proper use, does it? And I think the same with alcohol, because here we see in the Bible, wine is a blessing of God. Wine is a blessing of God. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 7, 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord speaks his blessing over the people and he says this. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine. The Lord's blessing in Deuteronomy 7 is seen in the multiplication of wine. No surprise then that when Jesus turns up on the scene, one of the first things he does is multiply wine. Here's the king of heaven with his blessing. Wine in the Bible is seen as a blessing of God. And actually, we see this in the Old Testament, some of the judgments. You know, some of the judgments is that the fruit of the vine will wither, that wine will be removed. It's a blessing that gets taken away in judgment. Wine is a blessing of God's. It's hard to read the Bible and not see wine positively. And I think that's putting it lightly. Because actually, even more than that, look, point number five, wine is given as a pleasing sacrifice. This is where you wish you'd read Leviticus better. (laughs) In the Old Testament, we get these things called drink offerings, where various things get mixed with wine. And we're told that they make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It pleases the Lord. Wine is good. What else? I'm giving you them in groups of five. Stop us being overwhelmed. (laughs) What else do we see in the Bible? Wine is enjoyed by Jesus and his followers. Here's Matthew 11, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and, yes, drinking. Jesus came drinking, not drunk. Not drunk, but Jesus did come drinking. So much so, in fact, that some people thought he was a drunkard when he wasn't. Wine is enjoyed by Jesus and his followers. Number seven, wine is used in the Lord's Supper. We know that. Point number eight, Jesus promises at the Lord's Supper that he will drink wine in his kingdom. Jesus says to his disciples, doesn't he? I will not eat of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. There's something climactic about wine, that there's going to be feast and wine with Jesus when he returns, when he's king of all things. It's positive, isn't it? Jesus made wine, John chapter 2. He made it. It's his grand ministry opener in John chapter 2. He's he's lord of the party. He makes the best wine ever. We've got to account for that, haven't we? Point number 10, and you might want to look up this one up, Psalm 104. In Psalm 104, the Bible teaches us that wine is given by God for gladdening hearts. Now, wine in the Bible is given for gladdening hearts. Now, the psalm begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The psalm goes on, The Lord set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. The psalm speaks of the valleys and the mountains and the birds, all made by God. And it overflows with praise. And in verse 14 and 15 of the psalm, you get this. The Lord, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Wine can bring gladness. God's made it that way. The Lord made it that way. Wine in the Bible seems to be positive. Indeed, there's a purpose for which the Lord has given it, but more to be said. Wine, if we love it, will ruin. Wine, if we love it, will ruin. Here is uh, 
You just want to get into Leviticus, Proverbs, let's just do it all, hey? Proverbs 21, verse 17 says this, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Wine can be enjoyed, says the Bible, but if you love it, you won't succeed in life. You won't get the fullness of life described in the book of Proverbs. You won't have that that richness. You'll in some sense continually be impoverished. You see, the lover of pleasure keeps spending and spending and spending and spending all their resources on it. And the lover of wine, this proverb says, much the same. They'll never be rich. Wine, if you love it, can ruin you, says the book of Proverbs. Furthermore, wine can be addictive. Wine can be addictive. I was startled discovering Proverbs 23. Uh, This is just a modern expose of drunkenness, really. Proverbs 23, I'll read from this at length for us. Drink can be dangerous. Wine can be addictive. Look at these verses. A writer of the Proverbs says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without a cause? Who has redness of eye? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That's Proverbs 23. It's a picture there, isn't it, of the life that's totally desensitized, totally intoxicated, and all the person can do at that moment in Psalm 23 is say, when can I have another drink? Wine can be addictive, and addictions bring deadly destruction. Addictions are, as one person has said and put it, addictions are a banquet in the grave. Here's the point some of you might have been waiting for. Wine is not for drunkenness. Wine is not for drunkenness, unquestionably so in the Bible. Drinking wine may not be a sin, but drunkenness is. So we had it read for us in Ephesians chapter 5, didn't we? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor nor idolaters, and so on, nor thieves, nor swindlers, nor drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 teaches that Christians won't get drunk. Why? Because that is what they once were, but they're not anymore. You were that, but you've been washed, you've been clean, you've been set free from that. Christians are filled with another intoxication, and that of the Spirit. And all this to say, I think, by way of implication, this very simple fact. Wine can be abused, can't it? Wine, beer, it can be abused. So it needs to be used carefully. And we see this in the Bible because actually wine is is used actually quite dangerously in other circumstances. 
Here's point number 16. Wine is sometimes forbidden by false teachers in the Bible. So 1 Timothy chapter 4 teaches that there are some false teachers who teach that you abstain from eating certain foods. Now, it seems likely that if false teachers were teaching that you abstain from eating certain foods, it is very well likely that they taught that you abstain from certain kinds of drink as well. And if they were teaching that, that very likely included wine. Wine can be forbidden by false teachers as as a way of teaching a false religion, as as a legalism, as a moralism that takes people away from a rescue in Jesus alone. Let's be careful. But God sometimes forbids wine as well. Leviticus 10 verse 9 teaches that the priests in the Old Testament, while they were conducting their duties, ought not drink. Now, I'm not a priest, but imagine me trying to communicate all of this being one drink down. Wouldn't be a great experience, would it? So there are good reasons why God forbids wine sometimes. Point number 18. I've got 20 of these, so we're almost there. Uh, Wine can be used in moderation. If you read the same letter, 1 Timothy, you see in chapter 3 the qualifications for leaders in the church. And one of the qualifications for a leader in the church is that they are not a drunkard. In other words, elders and church leaders are to live exemplary Christian lives, to live by way of example and not get drunk. So they're to drink in such a way that that they don't get drunk. They're to live a life of moderation. Wine can be used. In moderation. 1 Timothy chapter 3 for you there. Um, Point number 19. Other strong drinks are permitted in the Bible. I won't say anything on that. You can take that one home with you if you like. Um, Wine is to be enjoyed thoughtfully. Uh, Romans chapter 14 in the Bible. This is really heavy, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Romans chapter 14 in the Bible speaks of um, Christians who struggled with eating certain foods. And Paul says, all all things are good, all things are permissible. You have a Christian freedom to eat and drink. But some Christians' conscience wouldn't allow them to. They were weaker brothers in that matter. And Paul spoke to these Christians who struggled to eat certain food, and and their stronger brothers who would eat the food. And Paul said, look, if if you feel a Christian freedom, if you feel that you're able to drink, your conscience allows that. Other Christians won't feel that way. Other Christians will really struggle to drink. And if that's the case... If your conscience allows you to drink, well, be thoughtful about that. Don't drink with a swagger. Don't be forcing drink upon your brothers and sisters who don't feel able to do that. Drink thoughtfully. Drink thoughtfully. Don't cause them to stumble over their conscience. Be sensitive. Be sensitive. What does the Bible say about drink? It's a matter of Christian freedom. One writer in Christianity Today magazine says it's fair to say that total abstinence and moderate use were both acceptable to Jesus. And if both those positions were acceptable to Jesus, they should be acceptable to us too. Potential for abuse does not rule out the proper use of wine. We should feel a Christian freedom in this matter. Of course, the most important question then is, Ollie, go on, what is proper use? How much should I drink? In what situation should I feel free to drink? In what situation should I perhaps feel more cautious? Of course, it'll depend, won't it? It really will depend. But I want to say, if we start by asking those questions, we're in the right place, aren't we? The Lord's getting us sensitive to following him. 
So let's be about asking those questions. And if, if you go away from here and you're just starting to ask those questions of wisdom, where, how much, then I want to say good things have been achieved this morning. Whether I drink alcohol or not is a matter of Christian freedom. We want to say that all you need to be saved is Jesus Christ. So we must feel a Christian freedom. I might want to do a mission to Muslim, Muslim folk where they have a strict teetotalism in some quarters. So I might decide I won't drink in order to reach Muslims. But let's say, for argument's sake, we formed a little church of former Muslims. And then all of a sudden, one of them starts saying, oh, you can't drink if you come here. Then I want to say, let's open the red. Right? Because this is a matter of Christian freedom. It's only Jesus who saves. In 1982, the church pastor John Piper was asked to add a provision to their church membership rules requiring teetotalism. Now, he, was, he is teetotal, but he wouldn't allow it. He made an amendment removing a demand for people to be teetotal. And here's what he said. He said, I want to hate what God hates and love what God loves. And this I know beyond a shadow of doubt God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. If any of you still wonders why I go on supporting this amendment to remove teetotalism, after hearing all the tragic stories about lives ruined through alcohol, the reason is that when I go home at night and close my eyes and let eternity rise in my mind, I see 10 million people more in hell through legalism than alcoholism. And this is literally an understatement, he says. Legalism is a more dangerous disease than alcoholism because it doesn't look like one. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed in the world. So they don't think they need Jesus. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes them self-sufficient, depending on no one. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives it strength. Alcoholics don't feel welcome in the church. Legalism, legalists love to hear their morality extolled in the church. Therefore, says Piper, what we need in the church is not front-end regulations to try to keep ourselves pure. We need to preach and pray and believe that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither teetotalism nor social drinking, neither legalism nor alcoholism is of any avail with God, but only a new creation. What does the Bible say about drink? It's a matter of Christian freedom. It's also, I think, a matter of Christian wisdom. It's also a matter of Christian wisdom. The Bible's very clear that drunkenness is rebellion against God. So as Christians, we need wisdom to see that wine is a good gift, but not to abuse it, to use it appropriately. So this is going to mean that I understand wine as a gift from God. I do see that it can be that, that it can be a blessing. Some of you might have heard these points this morning and think, wow, wine, I didn't realise wine was that positive in the Bible. Maybe I should be drinking wine. Let me say, here's where wisdom's needed. There are many good gifts in the world, and I don't enjoy them all. Olives are a blessing of God. You don't have to like them. You don't have to enjoy every blessing of God. I might like wine. Becca might not. And that's fine. That's fine. We don't all enjoy the same gifts. That's fine. But the Bible says a little bit of wine can gladden the heart. But more than that, and what does it do? It exaggerates our sinful desires. Something that started out as something to enjoy can further our sadness and sorrow, and it can actually incite anger and jealousy. We must be clear 
This is why we need wisdom. We must be clear that while wine can gladden the heart of men, it can never produce the joy of the Holy Spirit that we only find in Jesus. We need wisdom on this matter of wine because it's often a thing that gets joked about. So go and try and find a gift for Mother's Day. And you'll likely find all sorts of merchandise labelled things like this. Motherhood, powered by love, fueled by coffee, sustained by wine. Or you might find this acronym on glasses in the gift shops. Women, women in need of sanity. Women in need of sanity. Winos need wine to get through it. Wine o'clock, ladies. Or you might have heard wine refused, uh, um, spoken of, uh, about as um, mummy juice. And we laugh, don't we? It's a subtle message, but oh so dangerous, isn't it? That actually it's okay to use wine to make it. It's funny and we get it, but it's misguided, isn't it? What does it say? It says the Holy Spirit isn't enough. These jokes are much the same. They say it's, you, you can need wine, that's okay. But here's a matter of wisdom, right? Wine is a gift that can be used, but when we start to abuse it... Well, the jokes make it harder, don't they? How do I call out a brother and sister on a, on a wine issue, on, on a drinking issue? If, if, if I'm drinking to excess, I can't do it. How, how does someone come forward saying, throughout this lockdown, I've drank half a bottle of whiskey every night. Ollie, can you help me? How, how do I help that person if I joke about it? Wisdom is needed. Wisdom is needed. One of the bits of wisdom when I was a student that went around uh, university was that what you ought to do with wine um, is you ought to only drink with those people who knew you well, with your friends or your family, and they would knew, know that you weren't getting drunk. And here, here again is wisdom, isn't it? It's actually we say that, but immediately we notice, don't we? Jesus came drinking, didn't he? So what happens if I only drink with a little drinking club... Well, I'm creating a pietism. I'm becoming like a Pharisee, aren't I? Really, Jesus came drinking, and he wasn't afraid to associate with those that did drink. He wasn't. He got up close and personal. People thought Jesus was hanging out with the wrong crowd. And if I say I won't associate with people who drink, well, I'm basically saying I won't associate with Jesus. We need wisdom, don't we? We do need wisdom. You see, compromise, drunkenness is a sin, and it does harm our witness, but so does pietism, because it pushes us away from the message of grace in the Lord Jesus, the message that it's not about religious methodology. It's about the cross and the resurrection. Drink is a matter of Christian wisdom, isn't it? And I've just given a few case studies there for us, but there are many. We need to treat drink as a, as a gift, but be very careful not to abuse it. We need to make sure that we don't devalue a blessing from God. But notice the dangers too. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Last thing I want to say actually on this, on, on uh, drink being a matter of Christian wisdom is this. It's a matter of Christian wisdom. Why? Because we can so easily turn to drink with our sorrows, can't we? I've quoted, I think, this stat in church before, that it's believed that in the UK, one in three people suffer with depression. One in three calls to the GP apparently are around depression. In the United States, and I suspect it's true here in the UK too, that 29%, so that's almost one third of all victims of suicide, are found with alcohol in their system. 
drink can so easily take, turn into a coping mechanism, can't it? Are, are a little bit here to help me get by, and before you know it, it's a problem. And rather than providing relief, it simply strips us of our desire to live to the glory of God. Alcohol only tightens the noose, and significant and extreme alcohol consumption can exaggerate physiological problems and spiritual problems. Alcohol in our culture might give us a narrative of hope, but the truth is, as one person has written, alcohol will not lay down its life for us, but it can demand that we lay down our life for it. Uh, Christine Chapel, writing again for the Gospel Coalition, says this, Drink has no voice to soothe us, for numb isn't the same as healed. Wine offers no rescue, for disorientation isn't the same as freedom. We seek in the glass what only the God of all comforts can supply, the all-satisfying love of our living hope, Jesus Christ. So friends, drink, it can be a blessing, but it's a, it's a danger too. It's a matter of Christian freedom, it's a matter of Christian wisdom. Last thing, and, uh, and we're done. Last thing I want to say, what does the wine say? What does the Bible say about wine? What does the Bible say about drink? It's a matter of Christian passion. It's a matter of Christian passion. Jesus made the best wine. Jesus promises us wine in his kingdom. Go and read Isaiah 24, 25, 26, 27. Jesus promises to satisfy our thirst. If you know him, you can drink. But you don't need to drink. You can choose to drink or you can choose not to drink. You don't, you don't want to get drunk. Why? Because the only person, the only thing of whom you want to drink deeply is Jesus himself. You want to be passionate about showing that your allegiance is ultimately to him. Our allegiance isn't to alcoholism or to moralism or pietism. Our allegiance is only to him. And I want to ask us this morning, is that where we're at? Does your passion for a gift of God put it in its right place and put drunkenness out of the picture? What does it say about me and my heart if I cannot put drink in that place of Christian freedom? One work on addiction recounts one addict's conversation with his wife. This is about drug abuse. But the testimony works equally well for, for drink as well. This gentleman says, My wife said to me that I was going to have to make a choice, either cocaine or her. Before she finished the sentence, I knew what was coming. So I told her to think carefully about what she was going to say. It was clear to me that there wasn't a choice. I love my wife, but I'm not choosing anything over cocaine. It's sick. That's what things have come to. But nothing and nobody comes before my coke. Nothing and nobody comes before my drink. Friends, it's a matter of Christian passion, isn't it? That nothing and nobody comes before the Lord Jesus. He is worthy of all our praise and all our adoration and all our devotion. And this man says, you forced me to choose. And I knew what I already loved. Addictions are anti-relational, they are anti-gods, and in the end we choose our sin and it controls us. Alcoholism is a dangerous thing, isn't it? And in the end, it shows us a more terrible disease in our hearts too. So let me ask, have you got it wrong in the past? I guess some of us, many of us may have. Let me ask, are you still getting it wrong? I, I don't know what the answer to that will be. But here is the Christian passion. That if you come to the one true God, 
you will find a God who is bigger than you ever thought, bigger in justice, bigger in power, bigger in love. You will see the greatness of his love for you in his acts on your behalf. You can go to Alcoholics Anonymous and you can engage there with uh, a higher power, uh, a God as you imagine him to be, apparently. The truth is that God will never be big enough for you. You'll be tempted to think that God's never better, not better than you, that he'll never forgive you. You'll be tempted to minimise sin. But meet the Lord Jesus and you'll find one who pursues you rather than waiting for you to be perfect. You'll find one who, who gives himself for your forgiveness. You'll find one whose burden is light and whose commands are good and who gives you the power to fight sin, to wage war, knowing God's forgiveness. It's not a begrudging act, but it's a pleasure and a delight of his everlasting kindness. That's who you'll find. Out and about, what does the Bible say about drink? It's a matter of freedom. It's a matter of wisdom. And it's a matter of passion. Isn't it? Because Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Should we pray? Our loving Father, uh, we give you great thanks for the one who is to us living water. Thank you that we can be fully satisfied in him. And Father, we just ask your forgiveness for those ways in which we have related wrongly to your gifts and your blessings. We ask your forgiveness. And Father, as we approach this issue now, we ask that you would help us grow in much wisdom. Help us out of here to have those discussions that we need to, talking through the applications of your scripture. And bless us as we seek to grow in this area, to be more like the Lord Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.